the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. we got to talk about this blowout July jobs number, of course, and we will do that momentarily. But first, as uh, phase four COVID relief negotiations continue and seem to not be going particularly well, I don't know why Trump is keeping up appearances. He should just walk. Um, Mark Meadows was on with Wolf Blitzer. Listen to how Wolf Blitzer characterized the enhanced unemployment benefits, this argument over whether or not the $600 per week bump should continue to persist. Now, again, unemployment insurance still exists and still will continue to exist. But instead of getting you know, half of your normal pay, you know, it's upwards of 70 percent. And in many, many cases, the majority of cases for those unemployed, the twenty four hundred bucks extra a month has them earning more unemployed than they did employed. And that seems to be a perverse way to do things for all kinds of seemingly obvious reasons to most, but not to Wolf Blitzer. You said uh, earlier that if there's not a deal with the Democrats by Friday, there won't be a deal at all. Are you really willing to tell millions of Americans who are struggling right now uh, that there won't be a deal and they will either not be able to pay the rent, they'll be homeless, or they'll be uh, forced to, to, to look for food and go to, to places simply to get free food? Well, certainly the president has been very clear on that particular issue, Wolf, and he uh, has really charged not just uh, Secretary Mnuchin and myself, but but all Republicans to come to the, the table and stay engaged. But what I'm saying is, is by Friday, if we haven't made significant progress uh, and we're just too far apart, the president's prepared to take an executive action in, on those two items that you're talking about, making sure that eviction protection uh, is done. He will do that with uh, through executive action, making sure that those enhanced unemployment payments that stopped uh, because uh, Democrats refused to say yes just a few days ago. Uh, he will do uh, executive actions and take uh, executive actions to actually address those two areas to make sure that at least what he can do is is take action because Congress won't. So the good news for your viewers is if Congress can't get it done, the president of the United States will. Congress can't get it done. The president of the United States will. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Scott the Cowguy Shalady, a Fox Business contributor. Scott the Cowguy Shalady, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Let's begin with um, let's begin with what Mark Meadows said. First of all, Wolf Blitzer, um, if you don't get six hundred dollars a week 
If you don't continue to get it, if you don't continue to make more than you're making working, then you will starve and die immediately. I mean, it's just insane. But uh, the, the problem is that, of course, a lot of Republicans are cowered by that sort of rhetoric. Should Trump take the opportunity to that now that there's a recognition Nancy Pelosi doesn't really want to deal to walk away and just be done with this, particularly against the backdrop of one point eight million new jobs in July? Yeah, I mean, I, there's so many things that play into it. But yes, I think that the general public can realize that they don't want to do a deal. And the difference between, say, a trillion and three trillion, it's, it's a massive chasm. And she's making, we all know it's so transparent why she doesn't want to do a deal, because the orange mad bad, anything that he does is bad. So uh, yeah, what, he should walk number one. Number two is you're right, there are still, you still get unemployment. This is just with cream on top of your unemployment. And, and apparently Wolf Blitzer is ha- having flashbacks to when he was a young 25-year-old in the last depression standing in a food line. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the government can't be the person that's competing for all the employees. That's just not right. So, that, yes, there are a lot of people out there that are making upwards of 70 grand a year annualized before tax. And a lot of them weren't ever making that before. So it's just absolutely ridiculous to think that that can go on. And here's another thing. They are the ones that are shutting us down. And if you shut an economy down, it's like walking into the store. You break it, you own it. Now you own it, right? Now, so they want to shut you down and still and, and, and give you all this. We don't have the opportunity. It's not an option to shut down anymore. We can't afford it. It can't continue to keep doing this. So I was against the shutdown in the first place. And I think ultimately I'll be proven correct. Once we get over this, not one bot, you know, not one person can be lost to um, the economy. But at the end of this of the day, they want to shut us down and pay you to stay home, and we just don't have the money. Scott, when you were in on Wednesday, uh, you, we were talking about the ADP projected July jobs number of one hundred sixty-seven thousand. It comes in at one point eight million. I mean, I know ADP is uh, often off the DOL number, but but. But, you know, by a factor of uh, more than 9x, uh, it's, well, do, should we buy that 1.8 million number? Uh, no, I mean, it's yes, it's nice to see right now, but I know that that's going to get a little bit worse here because we did, after we started sending all these people back to work, we had these governors start rolling back again, if you remember correctly. And look, we need to have a number like this for 10 months in a row to get back to scratch. I mean, we're, we're still in dire straits. And let's celebrate the fact that we saw the unemployment rate come down to 10 point something. I, did, I don't have it in front of me. but Ten two, that, yeah. That's, yeah, that's still a disaster. And we still haven't really got a true accounting of all the shops in Chicago that are, are, are just mom and pop shops that are gone for good. And here's another thing that I, I spoke to you about, Dan. If you're a, sh- a young aspiring chef, right, and it's your dream to open up a restaurant, are you going to save up all your shekels now and plow them into this and borrow money from granny and plow them into a restaurant that could easily be taken away from you in two years' time from the next virus? And now you're bankrupt and you've lost everything? I mean, this whole idea that the government has that, that heavy hand and could come in and tell you, you are shut down, has got to be sending shockwaves through every you know, self-employed business owner in the country because who wants to take that risk anymore except for chain restaurants and big box stores. That is going to be America for the next 10 years. Well, and I got to tell you, um, I know it's a lot better than what the um, Marxists are presenting or would do if they had complete control of the federal government. But yesterday, President Trump, I mean, much like with this discussion where you have Larry Kudlow, of all people, arguing that he's okay with the enhanced unemployment benefits at the $600 level in the short term uh, and phasing them out over time. I mean, phase them out. You know, why don't 
free marketeers, conservatives, just they, they don't want to make an argument. They just don't want to make, we agree, you know, it is, it is exactly what Malcolm Wallop said in 1992 before the Gingrich Revolution, the former senator from Wyoming. The difference between Republicans and Democrats right now is if Democrats introduce a bill to burn down the Capitol, Republicans will compromise and agree to phase it in over three years. That's exactly what you're getting from the Trump administration. I just don't understand a full-throated defense of what makes sense, incentives for people to work. And it's the same thing here. You get Trump imposing yesterday a 10% ta- tariff on Canadian aluminum, where he was uh, virtue signaling in front of uh, Whirlpool factory workers in Ohio, saying Canada is somehow taking advantage of U.S. aluminum makers. I mean, what, what was the point of the USMCA, this wonderful trade deal, if it's just going to be more protectionist trade policy? I agree wholeheartedly. And I tell you, most of this, I would have to say, is going to be, is this electioneering? I don't think that we'd be having this conversation going, you know, if it was any other side of the election. I don't think the $600 would come up. I mean, obviously, the, the left would bring it up, but it would just be shot down. We just don't have the money. We're at the point now where we spent a tr- we're going to be spending roughly a trillion dollars a month for five months. That's a disaster. We were not healthy going into the pandemic, by the way, either. We thought we were healthy and nobody really wanted to drill down and look at this economy because we were teetering as it was. So if we were going to spend five trillion, have the Fed backstop the stock market. I mean, folks, we haven't had even a true accounting of all the small businesses that have gone out of business. This is good. We are going to we're going to be talking about pandemic or uh, coronavirus deaths on your television screen for the next 10 years. Okay, I'm not kidding. It's just going to be the way it is because it's going to be cold flu and COVID season. You're not going to get any cold and flu numbers, just COVID numbers. Right. You're not going to fill a stadium. I don't know how long that's going to be. Maybe 2023. When are they going to let people back into the stadium? How about if you own a bar and you are barely covering your not around Wrigley Field? It's over. It's, and then you're, if you're the owner of the building, you can't rent it out because no one's going to touch it until we, we know what's going on. So this is this is a historic proportions, and I've been screaming from the top of the mountain, and everybody's just got the Pollyannish, what their head in the sand, whistling by the graveyard. Is that, so here, two things you want government to do. This is really at the state level with respect to the lockdowns. That's pretty clear. At the federal level, is the only thing you want government to do to advance liability protection for uh, enterprises so that they uh, are not saddled with uh, uh, endless and largely frivolous litigation if they reopen their doors? That that's that, that has to happen or nothing happens. I mean, that's got to be it because we're such a litigious society. We have to give these people uh, – obviously, you work with employees that can't make it back. And that's another problem, Dan, is that the, the government really wasn't out in front of this. And uh, obviously, mainstream media hates the government. So they've turned this issue into a psychological issue, which is terribly – terribly difficult to kind of pull back into the barn, right? So now we got, we definitely have to do the liability issue. And somehow we have to make these people that are, would normally be intelligent individuals at the age of say 50, that now are too afraid to come out of their houses. I mean, that, there, there's a psychological warfare going on as well. So it, it's going to take a long time to convince, even if you open up the economy tomorrow, 100%, we have no coronavirus. We give everybody liability. 60% of Americans still wouldn't go to a restaurant. I mean, well, how, what, who are you expecting to be your new customers if you own said restaurant? I mean, it's just it's just mind-boggling. Scott the Cow Guy Shalady, Fox Business regular. Scott, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. See you. She said, don't give me no lines and keep your hands to yourself. The podcast of the show at danprofshow.com.
Welcome back to the show. Well, one uh, sector in our economy is doing very well thanks to government policy, where most are suffering because of government policy. The one doing very well because of government policy? The uh, firearm sector. Firearm sector. Uh, As uh, we mentioned yesterday, the FBI's most recent gun sale figures. In July, the Bureau carried out 3.6 million background checks, the third highest month on record. Adjusting to reflect checks only for gun purchases, the National Shooting Sports Foundation says this translates into about 1.8 million gun sales for July of 2020, which is a 122% increase over July of 2019. 12,000, excuse me, 12,141,000 gun sales through this July is just shy of the 13.1 million sales for all of 2019. And, of course, we got a quarter left, don't we? And so how government policy, it's not necessarily the gun banning policy or even the NRA banning policies, as we're about to get to. It's a referendum on the lack of law and order in big cities and not just big cities, but mainly big cities. Interestingly, 40 uh, the more data on this, 40 percent of first time buyers are women. And a National Shooting Sports Foundation survey of gun retailers report that sales to black Americans are up 58 percent for the first six months of this year, the largest increase for any demographic group, which speaks to the supposition that this has a lot to do with the urban unrest in big cities where a majority of black Americans live. Very interesting. And so with that sort of uh, response happening among the masses, what is the response from the elites? Well, you got it yesterday. New York Attorney General Letitia James filed a lawsuit Thursday calling for the dissolution of the National Rifle Association. And, and, you know, as an NRA member myself, golly, I sure appreciate it. I sure appreciate her looking out for me and my member dues to make sure that uh, the NRA is abiding its fiduciary responsibility to me to make sure my member dues go where they're intended to go with respect to whether it be policy advocacy or, or gun safety courses or the, uh, the, the communication products they put out. This was uh, Attorney General James explaining her uh, complaint. For these years of fraud and misconduct, we are seeking an order to dissolve the NRA in its entirety. Uh, NRA President Carolyn Meadows uh, responded to uh, James's suit saying, quote, this was a baseless premeditated, premeditated attack on our organization and the Second Amendment freedoms it fights to defend. She also suggested that you could you could have set your watch by it. The investigation was going to reach its crescendo as we moved into the 2020 election cycle. It's a transparent attempt to score political points and attack the leading voice in opposition to the leftist agenda. This 18 month investigation culminating with the announcement uh, less than 100 days before an election. Mm, Maybe there is something to that. And it's not to say, by the way, that there's not something to the underlying assertion that there was some questionable financial practices occurring at NRA. I mean, remember, there was reporting 
of a real disagreement uh, about uh, fiscal policy there, if you will, between former NRA president Ali North and some of the senior leadership, including uh, Wayne LaPierre. Uh, the NRA uh, National Review uh, editorial uh, column on this. The NRA does indeed seem to compensate its senior executives rather splendidly. And some of those expenses, for example, Wayne LaPierre's reported $3.6 million spent on car services and travel consultants over only two years, would raise eyebrows at most similar organizations. But they add nonprofit executives do not take a vow of property. Many of them earn sums comparable to what executives in the for-profit sector make. You may be scandalized by it, but it isn't a crime. And it doesn't call for the dissolution of those organizations. I'm sure she's not interested, Attorney General James, in looking at the expense reports from the CEOs of big nonprofit hospital groups or uh, other nonprofits, uh, big uh, art concerns and so forth. Uh, How about nonprofit colleges and universities? You know, you can go on and on. And President Trump sort of echoed the uh, NRA president, Carolyn Meadows, comments in response to the news. That's a very terrible thing that just happened. I think the NRA should move to Texas and lead a very good and beautiful life. Okay, well, anthropomorphizing the NRA, uh, move to Texas and everybody can live a wonderful, beautiful life. Uh, Sure. Yeah, obviously a lot more gun friendly than Arlington, Virginia. But uh, I suppose the proximity to the halls of power is useful to the NRA. The Wall Street Journal uh, on this uh, asked the rhetorical question, how better to neuter a major political opposition force? than to tell its donors they've been fleeced. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think that, um, that that's how it's going to be received. Even if some of these uh, financial irregularities prove true, uh, maybe there'll need to be a house cleaning, maybe some people will need to be held to account, maybe some new safeguards would need to be put in place if some of the more serious charges are true, maybe some restitution will have to be made. But the idea that you're going to have people say thank you to the New York State Attorney General who's trying to address the, you know, my interests in the organization I voluntarily joined by dissolving it. uh, That speaks to perhaps she doesn't have exactly have my best interests at heart. So rather than have the New York uh, State Attorney General intervene and get involved in the management of the NRA, there will probably more appropriately be some. Growl, grousing from the ground up to suggest some changements in management and management practices. That's probably the better way to do it. It's also probably the more likely way this will play out. It's not going to be, uh, oh, the hell with the NRA and the hell with my Second Amendment rights. It's going to be quite the opposite because what did they just confirm? They just confirmed that if they can't overturn the NRA, they being the cultural Marxist left, the gun banners like Attorney General James, if they can't ban the Second Amendment, if they can't overturn that, then they'll just try and ban the advocacy groups created by those voluntarily associating and supporting such an organization. Uh, to me, this is a huge and another one get out the vote moment for the Trump campaign. This will backfire on the left if James thought she was doing somebody a favor, a political favor, by going after the NRA. In these times of binary choices, 
whether they're actually binary or not, but that's essentially what they're boiling down to in the minds of many. The choice for NRA members, the choice for people concerned about Second Amendment rights, the choice for people concerned about not in an abstract way, their right to self-protection in a very real way against the backdrop of the lawlessness in big cities. This will only encourage them, embolden them to participate meaningfully in the November 3rd election, including casting their vote for Trump. That's what I suspect. This is Dan Proctor. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Heather McDonald from the Manhattan Institute, best-selling author, writing in uh, the uh, latest issue of Imprimus, Hillsdale College's publication, The coronavirus lockdowns demonstrated our leaders' ignorance of economic interdependence. After the riots, that ignorance has been shown to run far deeper. It is an ignorance about government's most fundamental obligation to safeguard life, liberty, and property. It is an ignorance about human nature and human striving. I found that paragraph to be particularly uh, powerful and relevant and also backed up by data. We're seeing how people who do understand those basics behave, including what I just mentioned in our conversation before the break about uh, the uh, complaint filed against the NRA. The fact that, uh, according to the National Shooting Sports Foundation, since the beginning of the year, sales to black gun sales to black Americans are up 58 percent. That's the largest increase for any demographic group. And, of course, we've seen gun sales July of 2020 over July of 2019, 122% increase. Well, what do you think is driving that? Fear of Joe Biden taking uh, your guns in places like Portland and Seattle and Chicago? Probably not. Just a very commonsensical concern about the ability to protect yourself when you see your civilian political leadership saying the cops won't. Oh, and by the way, as we've seen in places like Seattle, the cops telling you that you're on your own in Minneapolis. And then people behave like they're on their own. They take it seriously. For more on all this, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Heather McDonald, Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor of City Journal, New York Times bestselling author of The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender, uh, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. Heather, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me on, Don. It's always a pleasure. Four months of unprecedented government malfeasance was the uh, title of your piece in Imprimus that I was referencing. And um, it seems like there's a lot of evidence, as I was suggesting, just one data point, that people around the country really get it, even if they're rather silent about it. We are really playing with fire here in turning our backs on the fundamental duty of government, which is to protect the civil peace. And I would also say to tell citizens the truth. People are going around in an absolute state of panic with regards to the coronavirus because both the media and government officials refuse to give the straight facts about the extreme narrowness of threat here. It is confined to a very limited population. The outbreaks have been confined to nursing homes, prisons, and and meatpacking plants overwhelmingly. So we've got a state of fear from the, the virus that is completely unjustified, one that is destroying America's prosperity for generations to come. And then you have the government failing 
to protect property and lives during the riots. This has been a breakdown of government competence and legitimacy, unlike anything we've seen, I think, in, in American history. Well, one has to believe that there is a reckoning in the offing, particularly not just based on gun sales, but how about uh, Gallup, their survey out this week that finds 80% of black Americans want the same or more police presence where they live. I mean, if that's true and they and uh, they, along with everybody else, are watching to are watching and listening to what big city mayors are doing. I mean, that there it, it has to break one way or the other. Yeah, absolutely. I hope so. At this point, it feels like Americans are sleepwalking towards disaster. It is very bizarre, the passivity of the public. You know, we had those wonderful lockdown protests at the end of spring that were so universally mocked and reviled by public officials and by the media. But by and large, I think because of this utterly unjustified state of hysteria that people are in, they've put up with an unprecedented and unconstitutional abuse of government power to shut down the economy. And with the riots and the the rhetoric that is going on, claiming that this country is fundamentally racist currently, which is an utter lie, it is the opposite, Dan, as you well know. Every institution is dedicated to anti-racism. Every institution in this country is doing everything it can to hire and promote as many blacks as possible. It is the theme of every corporate meeting, of every university meeting, of every bank, of every law firm. It's an obsession. We are living this lie that we are so racist that we have to dismantle the police. And the results are right before our eyes. In Chicago, the four children, the, the you know, dozens of children who've been shot, four of them killed who are under the age of 10. This is happening in cities across the country. I really hope that there is going to be a major electoral reckoning because we could slide to a, a condition, I think, not just of civil anarchy, but of civil war. When uh, we come back with Heather McDonald, I want to uh, turn our attention to New York. Uh, they made famous broken windows policing. Now under de Blasio, they're making famous uh, pro-vandalism policing. Uh, more with Heather McDonald, a best-selling author of War on Cops, as well as The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. We'll be back right after this. Have a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. We're speaking with Heather McDonald, the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor of City Journal, New York Times bestselling author of The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. Uh, Heather, you uh, wrote recently in the City Journal about uh, Mayor de Blasio's gambits, uh, if from bail reform to celebrating the lowest prison population since World War II, regardless of the consequences of that statement uh, or how he how he arrived at the, the lowest prison population since uh, uh, World War II. You know, the backdrop being a 30 percent increase in gun in uh, shootings as well as murders year over year. That's not something to brag about normally. And then now to him essentially reversing the policing culture that provided the biggest drop in crime of any metropolitan area in the country 
over the last uh, couple of generations, and that was broken windows policing. That's out the door with Bill de Blasio. Yes, he's disbanded the unit that helped private property owners clean graffiti off their buildings, this utter urban blight. The city is a mess. The flight from the city, the moving vans line up by the day to get out of the tunnels. And we should say you're a New Yorker. I live there most of the year. I am now in California. But yes, I've lived there. I watched the city be destroyed first by the economic shutdowns. People are leaving. We learned how to make cities work. And downtown Chicago still has that understanding, I think. It still understands beautification, the necessity for public order. New York, we're forgetting it very quickly. We learned this lesson in the 90s. We created the biggest economic revival in the city's history, as well as conquered crime in a way that no other city had. All that is now being thrown out the window. It is stunning, utterly stunning, to see the ignorance manifested in public policy and the destructive consequences are right before our eyes. And actually, i got to tell you, that lesson not learned in Chicago, I mean, Chicago beset by violent crime, as you well know, is spending time here uh, and and documenting it. No, this is uh, appeasing the mob from, you know, the way that you uh, prevent um, the mob from taking down statues in Grand Park is you take them down yourself, which is what Mayor Lightfoot did here. This is what you're seeing everywhere. And it seems to me this is the real difference between the civil unrest in 2020 America versus, say, 1968 America, the response from authority was to promote law and order. The response was a law and order response generally in 68. The response here generally from the de Blasios and the Lightfoots and the Garcettis and the Durkins and the Wheelers and on and on is appeasement. And so uh, they find out and unfortunately the residents have some residents have to learn the hard way that appeasement turns out to be provocative. What's changed is that we've had another 50 years of university graduates bearing with them as they as they come out of college a completely delusional ideology of hatred of victim identity of a false narrative about America's oppression and they now run cities they run corporations and the elites are the source of our problems yeah the the idea that you know the American Bar Association used to be a bastion of, of Republican law and order and support for capitalism. It is now just the opposite. There are no more mainstream elite institutions, and that includes things like museums and foundations. Even symphony orchestras now are being taken over by race-based hatred uh, that, that haven't caved into this. And I... I I just hope that there's enough as that silent majority left to throw the bums out, at least in the political class, and send a message that we want to be post-racial. We do not want to have this divisive rhetoric of hatred and identity politics govern a society, because that's a way to take it down completely and return uh, to a state of, of, as as, as we're seeing, of, of civil violence. Uh, you, you suggest in your, your piece in Primus, if I'm reading it right, uh, something along the lines of what Walter Ru- Russell Mead suggested this week in the journal, which is that uh, this uh, chaotic atmosphere that we're experiencing, this is not going to subside for some time, that we're going to move from chaos to chaos for some time until we figure out a way to get our footing again, regardless of what happens in November. Well, yes, and we we... We don't need to figure it out. We know it already. So it's a question of leadership, really, 
We need leaders to tell us the truth about the coronavirus, which is that the vast, vast majority of Americans, you know, 99% are not at risk. There is no outdoor transmission. Outdoor mask wearing is ludicrous. You, you need to, the CDC's own guidelines says you need to be in close presence for 15 minutes with somebody who has been infected. If you're passing somebody outdoors where there's ample air circulation, you cannot get it. The reason we're all being bludgeoned to wear outdoor masks is because it turns us into walking symbols of the state and of fear. By, by, by wearing a mask outdoors, you're sending the message that death lurks everywhere. And it's a very efficient way for the public health establishment and the elites to keep this lockdown going. Uh, so we need the truth. We need leaders to say the truth. We need the truth, which is you balance costs and benefits. There is risk to everything. Yes, there will be deaths from the coronavirus as there's deaths from cancer, far more as there's deaths from heart disease, far more than from the coronavirus. But the consequences of these shutdowns, whether you want to measure it in terms of public health itself, which I think is a very narrow measure, but clearly the deaths from the medical lockdowns, from people being too scared to go to the hospital, deaths of despair, are way going to overnumber that. But that's the, the least of my concerns. My greatest concern for the coronavirus is that we are destroying the very possibility of American flourishing with these business shutdowns. It is we are we are we are canceling trillions of dollars of wealth of of hope of expectation that we'll never get back we need a leader to stand up and say we're going forward america has been courageous in the past it has to be courageous again and 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 discard this spirit crushing mantra of staying safe that is a way to destroy civilization how about Stay wise, stay brave, stay, stay informed, stay sublime, stay, stay committed to beauty. Staying safe is a way for people to cower and avoid all conquest and all accomplishment. She is Heather McDonald. She is the best-selling author of The Diversity Delusion, How Race and Gender Pandering Corrupt the University and Undermine Our Culture. Heather, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Don. Take care. Great to talk. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the show, and come on, man. Joe Biden has gone and done it again. Uh, This time with NPR's Lulu Garcia Navarro was discussing his position with respect to Cuban policy. Then went on this riff about uh, the Latino community and the African-American community and provided a distinction between the two, at least according to him. Unlike the African-American community, with notable exceptions, the Latino community is an incredibly diverse community with incredibly different attitudes about different things. No follow-up there from the NPR reporter that requires uh, actually listening to what's said rather than just being there to lob watermelons at Joe Biden so that he can strike them, uh, as well as having the courage to challenge idiotic statements that come from Joe Biden or any other politician on the left which go unchallenged. Well, that didn't set well with some of the same people 
who found the statement he made a couple weeks back in a radio interview with the Charlemagne the God talk show host out of New York that, you know, you ain't black if you're not voting for Biden. Didn't sit well. And so Joe Biden, uh, well, somebody on behalf of Joe Biden probably tweeted out the following last evening. Earlier today, I made some comments about diversity in the African-American community and Latino communities that I want to clarify. In no way did I mean to suggest the African-American community is a monolith, not by identity, not on issues, not at all. If I could translate that, in other words, I want to clarify that in no way did I mean to suggest the thing I explicitly said. You know, the thing, like the Bill of Rights. Uh, So Joe Biden once again talking himself into all sorts of controversy and raising the same questions that are dogging him about his mental acuity, as well as predictions about how well he'll hold up in a debate setting. But what Joe Biden was really saying is that, uh, you know, the black American vote is reliable, a reliable at a 95 percent clip. The Latino vote is more complicated. President Trump got 30 percent of the Latino vote in 2016, which is the same percentage Romney got. And perhaps he could even get more. And so it's a little bit more complicated for me trying to uh, navigate uh, Latino voters than it is black voters. That's what he's really saying. And it uh, was received as insulting to black voters. It should be that uh, your intellect is determined by a non-behavioral characteristic like your race or your gender, for that matter. But you should find it even more insulting if you're a black American that Joe Biden and the Democrat Socialist Party takes you for granted, even as the black Americans have suffered under their leadership when they've been allowed to lead, when they've been allowed to drive policy. And frankly, even when they haven't been formally in power, they've driven a lot of policy, particularly in urban centers at the state and local levels. They take you for granted, despite what they have done to undermine the vitality of the black community by undermining the intactness of the black family. This uh, could be an opportunity for a broader conversation that Joe Biden inadvertently sparked. We'll see. The uh, hand-wringing about uh, everything is racist you know, only gets you so far. Now, now can we, if we can get beyond that to uh, this bigger conversation about uh, victimology and family and the ingredients of success and independence and sharing in the American experience rather than buying the suggestion that there's no way you can Boy, that's the real conversation we have, or at least one we need to. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us at danproftshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes. Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. When science gets politicized, including medical science, including the use of therapeutics to treat COVID-19, and of course at the top of that list is hydroxychloroquine, almost solely for the reason that Trump at once at one time promoted it. Don Jr. promoted it again, and he had, uh, yeah, his social media posts yanked down. Look, um... Nobody is saying that uh, hydroxychloroquine is some panacea. Nobody's saying it cures COVID-19. Um, I spoke with uh, Stephen Hatfield, who's a, 
virologist from George Washington University uh, Medical Center yesterday. He's like, here's what we know. Here's what we've seen. Uh, here's what I've witnessed. Um, I also we also talked to our friend John Bao, who's an uh, emergency room doctor from Remote Health Solutions. Early stages of the infection, hydroxychloroquine is an effective treatment for some patients. <laughs> Why is that controversial? Because the president touted it. I mean, maybe at t- uh, some points in time he touted it inartfully, but that's the sum total of it. This is being uh, criticized and eliminated from civil discussion by the same people who think wearing uh, a cloth mask is a panacea to stopping the spread of the virus. I mean, it's just utter nonsense in so many different directions. You have remdesivir, you have dexamethasone, you know, plus hydroxychloroquine, which have shown some promise in various stages of the infection for some people based on patient profile and so forth. That's what our understanding is from all the medical professionals, doctors, public health professionals, virologists that we've spoken with. Why is this a debate? It's bizarre to me, uh, but not really because of our politically charged times and the use of everything to try to score cheap political points. And uh, that's when things suffer, like the quality of decision making in the interests of the public's health or the interests of a particular patient's health, for that matter. You, you have some governors like banning the use or trying to ban the use of hydroxychloroquine. It's it's lunacy. Again, it is not a panacea. It's not going to eradicate the virus. No one is making that claim. I'm saying it's, you know, one of the assets that we have to treat some patients. (laughs) And that is a crazy statement, according to the large swath of the D.C. press corps. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Scott Barber. He's the founder and owner of Barber Orthopedics in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, He was quoted in this piece um, in the Washington Examiner about the disconnect between the FDA and doctors prescribing hydroxychloroquine. Dr. Barber, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. uh, So what's your view on uh, the uh, discussion surrounding hydroxychloroquine and and um, and then develop uh, this issue between doctors and the FDA on the topic? Yeah, well, first of all, just to give your listeners some perspective, I have uh, a large orthopedic practice in Atlanta, Georgia. We have five clinics and a surgery center and an inpatient center. And our practice has been virtually uh, 100% open the entire time. And we haven't had a single incident. And by single incident, I mean, nobody's gotten deathly ill and thank God nobody's died. But we've had a couple of people test positive. We were able to continue practicing by quarantining appropriately, uh, sterilizing things appropriately, <clears throat> testing people, and yes, treating with hydroxychloroquine. And I can tell you that when the pandemic broke out, that I started behaving the way doctors generally behave when they're faced with a medical problem. We gather available literature, we sift through it, and we try to develop appropriate treatment options for our patients. I started studying the the covid outbreak from the beginning i learned early on it was a coronavirus we call it sars covid 2 i know that our our country has had experience with other covid sars covid 1 back in 2003 and i started to research hydroxychloroquine which by the way is a fda approved medicine for 65 years with one of the safest profiles of any medication out there and these are the things that i'm learning as i'm researching 
I'm listening to the media say all the time that there's not enough research out there on hydroxychloroquine, when in reality, there's tons of research on it. In fact, there are studies out there. Dr. Zelenko published a five-fold decrease in mortality when patients were treated early with hydroxychloroquine and zinc. Zinc as a cofactor is an important part of that. Um, when you look at all of the studies that have uh, said that hydroxychloroquine is ineffective, it's always toxic doses of hydroxychloroquine in late stage disease and usually with um, you know, sicker patients and in the case of the VA study, old sick patients. So I was early on like asking myself, what's going on with this medication that's like safe as a vitamin? I mean, if I was to tell you, listen, this vitamin might protect you from this deadly disease that's going around, would you say back to me, hey, listen, I'm gonna need another double blind crossover placebo controlled randomized study before I take it? Or would you just take the medicine? I mean, of course we would just take the multivitamin. That's how safe hydroxychloroquine is. Billions and billions of doses given over 65 years. And if you review the literature, there's been 50 cases attributed to death by cardiotoxicity. 50 cases in billions and billions of doses. I mean, you're literally more likely to be killed by a shark. And when you look at those 50 cases, they were all given high doses of hydroxychloroquine over a long period of time. So none of those people in the 65 years died from a heart issue uh, at the doses that we do to treat um, COVID patients. So then comes the, uh, the big studies in the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet. And people have to understand the Lancet is like the Bible. I mean, that is the number one medical journal. When something is in there, you can take it to the bank that it was rigorously peer reviewed, that the study has um, low bias in it, that it's a very quality study. And they came out in late May and early June with these studies that were supposedly these enormous studies over six continents for the New England Journal of Medicine, over three continents for the Lancet, saying that hydroxychloroquine was not only ineffective, but that it was dangerous. And right away, I had been studying the medicine for like two, three months, and I'm thinking, this is not true. So on the heels of those two big studies, the FDA, the World Health Organization, and the CDC all banned the use of hydroxychloroquine by citing these two big studies. And then two weeks two later, weeks and after yeah, the, they were, yeah, two weeks later, you, they retract, right? They're retracted, but they're not retracted because people went, well, maybe the study's not so great. No, it was fake data. It was a lie. It was, and, and when, as a doctor, I, I can't tell you just how earth shattering is. There's just no way that this happened um, by accident. And if you, you know, you talk about America's frontline doctors, we knew this information. I've had experience using hydroxychloroquine. It's been effective in my experience. There's lots of research out there demonstrating its efficacy. Dr. Fauci himself wrote an, uh, an article when he was director of uh, the NIH back in 2005 regarding SARS-CoV-1, which by the way is 78% the same as SARS-CoV-2, where he described hydroxychloroquine as not only the vaccine, but the cure. He knew that this was likely to be effective against SARS-CoV-2. There's just no way that he didn't know that. And so I'm sitting here going, what is going on? In fact, when, we, when America's frontline doctors went to DC, the CEO of Google, Sundar Pichai was asked why he censored us. And he said, well, their information went against the recommendations of the WHO and the CDC. Well, where did the WHO and the CDC get their recommendations? From these two false studies in the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine. And even still, this is where people who are suggesting that hydroxychloroquine is not effective, 
they're still citing these two now retracted stories. And you might ask yourself, what could possibly be the reasoning for this? Well, there's a company called Gilead that produces the drug Rendesmavir, which by the way, has one dubious study that shows a decrease in hospital stay, no effect on mortality. And that stock of Gilead dropped $21 billion when um, Donald Trump uh, suggested that hydroxychloroquine might be in an effective treatment. And so just as a practicing physician who relies on accurate medical data, this has just been, um, I, I don't even know how to explain it. It's, it's just unconscionable what's going on. I mean, you know, at the very most, I could see a reasonable doctor looking at the data and saying, well, I don't know if hydroxychloroquine will be effective. That, that I could even see they'd be wrong but I could at least see it. But the passion where we can't even talk about it, we go to DC, we're completely banned off of the internet and all social media platforms. The passion against it, the unwillingness to even discuss it or look at it is just irrational when you talk about one of the safest medicines around. I mean, if I was to tell you to take a multivitamin, wouldn't you just take it? I mean, I would. When we come back with Dr. Scott Barber, I want to talk about the lockdown artists and why they're so effective at brainwashing so many, including in the medical community. Show.com. We're back with Dr. Scott Barber talking uh, COVID and hydroxychloroquine. And uh, as to uh, the those in our society brainwashed or who have suspended reason out of fear, believe anything about uh, COVID that is told to them by scaremongering politicians. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, this is amplified because uh, their fellow travelers, ideological fellow travelers in the media, have the biggest blowtorch to spread this misinformation. Just give you another example just for us to kick around. It's something simple that anybody can understand, not complicated. Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball has a COVID-19 manual that's 100 pages long in terms of the rules. Uh, Rob Manfred, the commissioner, is being uh, is fielding calls to cancel the season because, you know, a handful of Marlins players test positive, a handful of Cardinals players test positive. Um, The league is mainly comprised of 25 to 34 year olds. A total of nine hundred and ninety two people in this age group have died with covid-19, according to CDC, no matter how expansive the definition is. Take everything granted out of the 160,000, less than 1,000 people, 25 to 34, have died. That's a mortality rate of two per 100,000. And yet, against this backdrop, some professional baseball player or the Cardinals or the Marlins or whoever tests positive and the reaction from certain quarters is shut down baseball. There is no rationality. It's gone because... Because you have, again, a a segment of the population that has been lobotomized by politicians and their press handmaidens. And I just don't think there's any getting through to them at this point. If there is, I don't know how. No, no. Listen, it's very powerful. And that's kind of the thing that that sort of uh, encouraged me to go to D.C., even though, you know, I went over the objection of my friends and family who are afraid of cancel culture. I mean, you saw Dr. Simone Gold was fired from her job and 
Dr. Stella Emanuel is under investigation in Texas for what? For just pointing out the fact that, like, why are we changing? Why are we implementing the most draconian policies in the history of our country for numbers like what you just stated? And listen, if you've sifted through the numbers, as I have, you'll find that a lot of those young people deaths are, you know, somebody had a ruptured appendix, yes, went to the right, hospital. Right. They tested them and, oh, you had a COVID test, which, by the way, we already said we don't know what that means anymore. They get surgery for their appendectomy and they die of the surgery. They're counted as a COVID death. So there's this perverse incentive that the AMA put in with this special COVID code that um, hospitals are using where they basically were getting $76,000 in admission um, and uh, there was no copay from the patient. So there's this. And, and, you know, the, 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 the definitions that they were giving, you don't necessarily have to have a positive test. It could just be, um, you know, it can just be assumed based on clinical uh, impression. And also, uh, it doesn't have to be the main issue. Yeah. So you've got this very loose um, definition of what can be a COVID test. And by the way, you get to bill, you know, this tremendous amount with no copay from the patient. So there's going to be no objection there. And so we wonder why we're getting these these numbers. And, you know, I'm saying to myself, listen, even if I know that's going on, but let's accept the numbers that you're giving me. Like you said, young people are largely bulletproof and our school age children. We actually have great data to show that they are not spreading it and they're not contracting it. The Iceland study, the Ireland study where they actually did contact tracing. They let their kids go back to school. They were able to do haplotype testing on the virus and confirm, you know, even if a parent was sick in the in in the same household as one of the children, they did not catch it from the child. So we have this data that shows not low but zero. I mean, on in multiple countries, and yet, uh, you know, it's, the last time I checked, I think they said that 30 kids had been had died, school-age children had died as as related to COVID. But we've had 190 kids die of influenza yeah, this it, year. It, I mean, it's, it's and they just, won't let us open. It's just it's it's all psychological. There's, as I said, it's a, it's a psychological illness. It's a it's a desire to feel like you're conquering some great challenge when you know there's no risk. That's why you get the signage and the virtue signaling. There there is no reason to this because people are deriving psychic. Uh, returns to this performance art that you're witnessing in every sector of our society, from education to the medical field to certainly, of course, always uh, the, pot, the the halls of government. It's uh, it's grotesque, but I I just don't know how you um, you combat it. Oh, you combat it effectively. I know how you can combat it in terms of doing the best you can, like you're doing, just presenting what you know to be true, presenting all the evidence, making a cogent, rational, simple argument. I just don't see that winning the day at present, though, unfortunately. Not in some states, in some communities, yes. But, um, uh, well, over the top nationally, uh, I just don't think it's penetrating. I, I just don't. Not among half the population, at least. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it's it's worthy. It's it's still worth uh, putting in the fight and, you know, come what may. And that's what you're doing. And we appreciate that. Yeah. You know, it's a really good sociology experience uh, experiment. Seven months of red line hysterical reporting on the news has had a dramatic effect. And, I, you know, for me, as I started following this and learning, OK, it's a coronavirus. Oh, it's primarily affecting people in their 70s and 80s with comorbid conditions. Oh, the numbers, when I'm looking at them, they're kind of inflated. So, And I'm thinking to myself, oh, the kids are not affected. I'm thinking to myself, okay, this is all good news. 
And then one day my wife just loses her mind. She's like, oh my God, we're all going to die. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? And she's like, this is just awful. And I'm like, Alyssa, it's not that bad. And the, the, the point I'm trying to make is this is my wife who knows me. You know what I mean? She knows I graduated <laughs> the top of my med school She knows class you're a doctor. And, you know, yeah, that's right. A, and, and she, but she knows I'm a good one too. And I'm like, why can't you trust me? And she goes, well, other doctors have other opinions. And I go, I know, but I'm just giving you the facts. And the, the, the message there is people are really afraid. And her message to me is the way that we get out of this is we need to give people control of their own lives. And that's why if yeah. you want to wear a mask, I think you should wear one if it makes you feel better. I don't believe they work. That's my opinion. I don't want anybody to send me any death threats over that. That's my opinion based on 25 years of studying the literature. And the number one thing is easy access to hydroxychloroquine. There's lots of research out there that hydroxychloroquine with zinc uh, is extremely effective. And, uh, you know, by the way, they just did a big meta-analysis of um, countries from around the world had a 78% lower mortality rate when they had free access to hydroxychloroquine. A lot of these third world nations with no real medical infrastructure, and they basically, they have access to hydroxychloroquine because they're in malaria zone. And so this is very compelling data. And I think it's good. It gives me a, a good understanding of why people are so passionate about preventing us from getting hydroxychloroquine out there is because they know it will be effective. He is Dr. Scott Barber. He's the founder and owner of Barber Orthopedics in Atlanta, Georgia. Dr. Barber, thanks so much for joining us, and good luck with your wife. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show, and uh, the uh, assertion was made by Tom Friedman, the New York Times, a couple weeks ago, one of those arguing that Joe Biden should pull out of the presidential debates, that if he is going to participate, Biden, that is, two things have to happen. One, Trump has to turn over his tax returns, make them publicly available. Two is because Trump has such a problem with truth, according to Tom Friedman, that there needs to be 10 minutes devoted to the end of each debate for a designated fact checker to have the stage and go through the statements made by the candidates and tell the audience which statements comported with the facts and which did not. Now, setting aside the hilarity of that proposition for a moment, just on the fact checking mechanism, because this has become sort of a cottage industry in the press corps. You remember from 2016, all of these news outlets didn't want to say, we're not saying this. 
look over here. Our fact checker is saying this. We've got this independent fact checker that are running down the statements made mainly by Trump, perhaps also a little bit by Hillary Clinton, PolitiFact, all these other uh, fact checkers that uh, issue edicts as to what is true and what is not true. Well, Shell Atkinson asked the question, who facts check the fact checkers, which is a great one. And she did some investigative work on answering that question, which is what she does. Cheryl Atkinson, investigative journalist and Emmy Award winning host of Full Measure, joins us. Cheryl, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, um, you know, as you uh, look into and provide a little bit of context to who the fact checkers are and from where they come, which is also important, how they're underwritten. uh, What did you find? Well, you can see all of this. This is quite a lengthy investigation at realclearinvestigations.com. But as you suspect, and I think as a lot of people who look at these fact checks suspect, whether they're done by news organizations or nonprofits or journalism groups or Google, Facebook, and Twitter, it really traces back to a fairly small group, verifiers, who kind of fact check and rely on each other to say the fact checks are good, a small group of players that's exerting an oversized influence. And I think they're using fact checks in many cases to shape and censor information. And we can talk specifically. I dug deeply into Facebook for this if you want to talk more specifically about what I found on that. Yeah, the Facebook and also the other one I get into in whichever, whichever order you prefer. But Eric Schmidt, the former chairman of Alphabet, the parent company of Google, since we have so much conversation right now going on about big tech and their censoriousness and their attempt to influence the election ostensibly, Um, You know, anybody associated with Google that's also running a quote unquote independent nonprofit fact checking operation. I want more background on. But uh, you start where you're comfortable. Well, let's do Facebook because of all the complaints they've had. I've seen true information or information that's opinion and theory falsely fact check as incorrect and censored. So I'm like, hmm, who is doing the fact checks? And, you know, You know, one of the problems with this is the fact checkers or any set of fact checkers can't possibly have global information on every topic, including things others have studied for many years, but they claim to know better, these fact checkers. So they're relying, of course, on their own personal opinions, biases, training, and other people, maybe the New York Times. You know, again, this goes in a big circle. The fact checkers may say, well, the New York Times says this is false, when we know the New York Times is guilty of many, many factual problems and the last couple of years. So on the oversight board that Facebook appointed to sort of litigate these controversies, they have 20 people. And I found 18 of the 20 are either tied to George Soros or his Open Society Foundations or groups that are funded by the Soros Open Society Foundations. Now, let me say this is a very progressive activist group. I don't think Facebook necessarily set out to pick a bunch of George Soros people, but Soros is so ubiquitous, his funding in in this world globally, that when you're Facebook and you think you're neutral fact checkers, you pull them all from a group of advocates and activists on human rights, which is what they did, you are bound to run across George Soros and his foundations in almost every case. And as I looked at these players, not only that, they've expressed opinions on a lot of hot button issues that would be fact-checked or litigated from race to climate change to vaccines. And they always, to the extent they expressed opinions, came down with a viewpoint on one side of the issue, not in a fair and unbiased way, excluding scientific information that differs with their interests. So it's hard for me to believe that these fact-checkers or this oversight board at Facebook can do a neutral job. And I'm not even sure that's what Facebook is looking for, but do a neutral job in deciding what viewpoints and accounts should be 
censored and which ones shouldn't. Well, uh, yeah, and it's fascinating. Despite that, you have uh, some some 1,000 companies that have uh, are boycotting Facebook advertising because they don't do enough to censor, quote-unquote, hate speech, which is uh, synonymous for disagreement with the left. That's how coward corporate America is by uh, uh, the, the, the regulation of speech on these social media platforms. And, and that's where I want to pick it up when we come back with Cheryl Atkinson, Cheryl Atkinson, investigative journalist, Emmy Award-winning host of Full Measure, talking about her excellent RealClearInvestigations.com look at who facts the fact-checkers. More with Cheryl right after this. Have a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. We're pleased to have with us Cheryl Atkinson, who is the investigative journalist, as you all know, an Emmy Award-winning host of Full Measure. We're talking about this uh, expansive look that she did at RealClearInvestigations.com about uh, fact-checkers and Cheryl being a one-woman fact-checker of the fact-checkers. We're specifically talking about Soros and the uh, influence of Soros money as uh, manifested on the advisory board at Facebook in terms of fact-checking for allowance of something to be posted or not posted. And it seems to me, Cheryl, one of the things here is there's a bias in the editorial choices, just as there is in media, generally speaking. You know, we can't possibly go through every topic and every statement on every topic to fact-check it. So we pick certain hot topic areas, perhaps certain contentious issues, or maybe it's just something that, say, President Trump has talked a lot about. And uh, we spoke with uh, an orthopedic doctor, a barber from Atlanta, Georgia, about this a bit earlier in the show, too. And he brought up this point, too. The Google taking down posts of Trump regarding YouTube and so forth and other doctors regarding hydroxychloroquine based on two Lancet studies that were subsequently retracted by the authors of the studies that that suggested hydroxychloroquine was not effective early stages of COVID-19 infectees. Uh, when in point of fact, the um, the experience of a lot of emergency room doctors that it is, and it's fine to debate that and it's fine to pour over the studies. But the basis for removing posts turned out to be a completely erroneous one by the admission of the the, the, the authors of the, the very studies upon which Google relied. And it seems like we have that playing out with the fact checkers, too. I'm only looking for certain people and certain statements on certain topics, and then we're going to litigate those statements from those people. Well, and remember, they're not picking a subject and trying to really tell the truth about it, in my view. They're picking a subject that their donors or interests or they want to shape opinion on, and they guise it as a fact check that they can then prove true or false according to what they want you to think. And oftentimes, they're litigating something that can't be known, that isn't known at the time, that's a matter of debate, that's something that may happen in the future, but they're, de- they're pretending to declare they're, they can tell the future or read minds or know more than everybody else, and they come down on one side of it. Uh, you better be careful about reporting on George Soros, because my friend over at the Chicago Tribune, John Cass, was called an anti-Semite for reporting facts about Soros-related uh, political donations to to, to uh, candidates for state's attorney's offices around the country, as you probably are aware. Well, I think people are smarter than that, and I do expect, as usual, to be trolled by Media Matters and the other propaganda groups, but I'm I'm kind of used to that. So that doesn't sway what I try to do in bringing truth to the public. Absolutely. And look, isn't this just an extension of the debate that was started? uh, Well, that was continued, really. The hearing with big tech executives last week, Jim Jordan basically said, look, you're, you're out to get conservatives. 
Um, you have a, a point of view. You're trying to advance that point of view. You're trying to uh, to silence people who don't share that point of view. And you're sort of doing it under the guise of either fact checking or hate speech or speech as violence. You know, sort of all of the the, the r- relatively transparent artifices of those who are trying to stamp out dissent. Right. And poor big tech in a way, um, you know, I think the proper tact that would have been best for everybody when they get this pressure, which started according to Media Matters, the progressive smear group headed by David Brock, they bragged for getting Facebook to first start censoring information. The first response Facebook should have had, and all of these companies, in my view, is we're not going to shape and censor anything except that which is illegal. We're not in the business of doing that. People can filter with all of the things and the tools we've provided if they don't want to see certain things, but that's not our job. But the moment they let that little crack open up where they said, okay, we'll start looking at this. Now everybody, left, right, center, corporations, is demanding that they fact check you know, political ads, content, speech, everything. And it's just never going to go anyplace good, at least for the, in the interest of the public when you've, when you've gone down that slippery slope. And uh, uh, sort of a, uh, a correlated issue is this, um, is this study that came out of University of Illinois from two uh, uh, journalism professors about Twitter. They looked at um, uh, about a third of all credential congressional correspondents, and they considered uh, the data set of more than 130,000 Twitter posts from these uh, 2,000 or so journalists. The conclusion is really interesting. So, you know, remember coming out of 2016, the the journalism profession and all these people surprised by the presidential outcome, how thick is our bubble? And we have to get out into the uh, countryside and understand what's happening in this America that we clearly don't understand. And we need to be more open minded to people at different points of view and where they're coming from and so on and so forth. Well, social media is just uh, providing havens for these enclaves, these echo chambers. At least this is a conclusion of two journalists, uh, journalism professors at U of I, where they basically say, look, um, overall, uh, political journal. This is the one of the conclusions from the state. Political journalists in D.C. are people used to it all day. And so the question is, what does that do to how they think about the world? Generally, from this paper, uh, it seems to me that it can make things a lot worse. They're just, you know, it's the blue check mafia talking to the blue check mafia. It's journalists talking to journalists. And uh, there really is no uh, perspective and there really is uh, not much diversity of thought either. It's, you know, they be, it's a it's a pack mentality. Well, I think one of the most important things people can do to, t- to address what you just said is to understand when they get on Twitter, Twitter or they watch the news today, they're not getting a picture of what's going on in most of the country. And this was emphasized by a reporter I spoke to in a smaller town in a smaller state who told me that they're pretty open, we're talking about coronavirus, and that when he watches the news, it's nothing at all like the experiences where he is, and he's reporting on the news differently there. And that's been my experience as I've traveled around, but the view you see on the news, you would think, if you came from Mars and watched it, that every state and every city is really in a dire coronavirus crisis. The news does not speak to the general public. Twitter does not reflect the, the viewpoints, and I think the news and the facts of a broad variety of how it really is out there. It's designed to make you think you're an outlier if you think differently. And if you understand that going in and don't live in that box, you can make use of Twitter in a way that can be positive. But if you don't understand how all of this works, you might succumb to this notion that, wow, look at how all the people think. I guess I'm really crazy to have my views and to look at this science that I think seems logical. I better not talk about it. I better not, you know, 
use that science because I, I'm supposed to talk about this. And I think we should resist that as much as possible and understand, you know, what it is that propagandists are trying to do. She is Cheryl Atkinson, investigative journalist and Emmy Award winning host of Full Measure. Also, check out her Real Clear Investigations piece that we have been discussing, fact-checking the fact-checkers and all the background information, the context, the consequence that all of her reporting always provides. It's excellent, and I will tweet it out at Dan Prof Show as well. Cheryl, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, please say a prayer for Michelle Obama. Apparently, uh, per her uh, podcast, yeah, she has a podcast now. It's called the Michelle Obama Podcast. She is suffering from what she calls a quote unquote low grade depression prompted by the pandemic, racism, I guess she's not proud of our country anymore, and what she describes as the hypocrisy of the Trump administration that has induced a low-grade depressive state in Michelle Obama, and that's a terrible thing for her to have to navigate. But And that doesn't even address the fact that her friend Ellen DeGeneres is under so much fire for her conduct, or alleged conduct at least. Interesting. The identity doesn't matter. The gender, the race, the sexual orientation doesn't matter. The conduct does with respect to Ellen's problems and the call from the left, largely, that she be replaced by some other lesbian. I think his name is James Corden. Anyway, Michelle Obama also had some other things to say in this uh, deep dive with journalist Michelle Norris. It's kind of a new COVID vocabulary, isn't it? There are also words that have always had some meaning, but that take on different meaning now. Mm -hmm. The word hero. Oh, yeah. um, the word essential, because we think we, I think we will forever think about the word essential in a different way. And when we were told to stay home, they got up, got dressed and went out into the world, risking their lives to drive garbage trucks, to work in warehouses, to work in grocery stores, to work in hospitals, often doing invisible. But yes, essential work. And I struggle with it because I'm not sure we treat them like they're essential. Like a teacher, you mean? That's a part of that reflection that we need to do with ourselves and, and, and as a community. And we have to think about that in terms of how wealth is distributed, you know, how these essential people are supported. And what does that mean? A lot of these people are broke. They don't have health insurance. That if they were to get sick, as essential as they are, we have not as a society deemed it essential to make sure that they can go to the doctor and get the care that they need. Uh-huh. Michelle Obama stays up at night thinking about garbage men. <laughs> if you believe that, that you uh, also are very concerned about her low-grade depression because of the pandemic. You also uh, can appreciate uh, the fact that she was only proud of her country after her husband got elected president and obviously he's no longer proud because her husband's no longer president or the person she wants is no longer president or not yet president or whatever the matter is. So Michelle Obama is so put upon and she's such a champion for the essential worker. Is that right? The essential worker was uh, actually doing quite well. All workers were doing quite well and all workers are essential, by the way. Right before we had these government takings, at every level, but particularly the state and local level of people's live, livelihoods. And in many cases, turns out by extension, lives. And I'm not talking about because we didn't 
impose a mask mandate earlier. I'm talking about because you took things away from people that they work for. And now you're taking things away from people like that they've already paid for, like their kids' education. No mention of those hero teachers in that little exchange between the two Michelles. Uh, interesting omission. Well, again, I hope Michelle Obama gets the uh, medical treatment she needs. I, I know she can afford it, thanks to Netflix and New York City publishers. This is Dan Pry. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us, danprofshow.com. That is the website. You also find podcasts there, as you do on Spotify and iTunes, Twitter, at Dan Proft and at Dan Prof Show. I got to go back to this um, rather stunning event in the Democrat Senate primary in Tennessee. Again, this is the seat that Lamar Alexander holds now. He's retiring. The Trump Act establishment-backed Republican, Haggerty, former Trump ambassador to Japan. He won the Republican primary. A woman named Marquita Bradshaw won a five-way contest with, I think of last reporting, about 36% of the vote. She raised something like $8,000 in the first quarter of the year. It doesn't appear that she even filed a second quarter fundraising report with the FEC. She is um, black. She's a black woman. Uh, she dominated in western Tennessee, including Shelby County, where Memphis is located, uh, per the returns. And uh, she defeated the preferred candidate of the Democrat Senatorial Campaign Committee, who's an Army veteran and an attorney and had a massive cash advantage over all of his opponents. This comes on the heels of William Clay losing his congressional seat in Missouri in a primary earlier in the week after 20 years as an incumbent. Elliot Engel losing his primary in New York State to a young African-American activist, uh, a Democrat socialist taking out Bill Lipinski in, on the southwest side of the city. Uh, so you got newly minted socialist Spice Girls and Boys coming to Congress. Well, uh, Marquita Bradshaw is probably not going to make it in Tennessee. But what does that say about where the Democrat Party is? Is this the Democrat socialist version of a Tea Party in tw that Republicans had in 2010, 10 years later, except it's not a Tea Party, it's a Marx Party. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Selena Zito. She's a Washington Examiner reporter, New York Post columnist, CNN contributor, and author of The Great Revolt, Inside the Populist Coalition, Reshaping American Politics. And that is uh, across the political spectrum, that uh, populist coalition reshaping American politics. I think we're starting to see an expression of it, or continuing to see uh, at an increased pace, an expression of it on the Democrat side, aren't we, Selena? Yes, absolutely. I'm really glad that you pointed this out because sometimes these kinds of races go under the radar of the national news, but they're incredibly important because they show how the parties are shifting. People ignored when this happened, when the Republicans did it up until 2016, and then all of a sudden they're like, whoa, wait, Donald Trump won? How did that happen? Right. Um, 
And so you see the same thing. I've been chronicling this for a while with the Democrats. And uh, you, you even saw it in, in my home state of Pennsylvania. Uh, and while they didn't place candidates at a high level, you know, congressional seats and, and Senate seats, what they did do, and I think this is actually very smart if you're trying to take change the party from the bottom up, is they ran, ran races in, um, in state House and state Senate seats. And the furthest left of the party won a healthy number of races in both Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. And while people might think, oh, why, you know, why should I pay attention to that? That's only a state, you know, house or state Senate seat. Well, that's where important policy is crafted and traditionally then taken up by federal, um, by the feds. So by a member of Congress or, um, or in the Senate and makes its way up um, to law. So watching these um, sort of moderate, and some of them even, you know, quite liberal Democrats lose in primaries to these left to far left, some uh, aligning with the socialist uh, party, is how movements begin. And I think that ignoring them um, at, is their folly um, in, on the national level. How do these results, do you think, over the last couple of years, the ascendancy of the squad uh, combined with what's happened over the last couple months even, how do they influence Joe Biden's vice presidential candidate selection? Um, well, I, it, it, because they're very reluctant to show their hand, it's very difficult to understand, um, uh, meaning the Biden team, it's very difficult to sort of calculate or speculate on 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 that decision making. Everything they are showing us right now is playing it safe. So I suspect that they're going to continue that with their vice presidential choice. Um, you know, and and that could potentially be a problem, and it could potentially be an electoral problem. For Biden, if they play it safe, if they don't go with where the direction of their party is going, uh, they could they could continue the enthusiasm gap that Biden already faces among his base. If you look at Pennsylvania's primary results, uh, Biden um, that happened June second, while Biden won, he didn't win by seventy percent. Um, or, or, you know, he didn't win by 90 percent. You know, both Bernie Sanders and Tulsi Gabbard, who was still on the uh, ballot, took, you know, healthy chunks away uh, from him in the primary results. You know, pe- people might dismiss that. But to me, that tells me that sends a red flag to me that there are people that either are not enthusiastic and will not vote for him and or because we're a closed primary state, are casting a vote against him because in the end they'll vote for Trump uh, in, in the general. And, and I want to get your reaction to this because you travel around and you talk to actual three-dimensional human beings that live outside the Beltway, and so you get a, a better handle on this. 
it, it, the case that uh, President Trump and Republicans and talk radio people like me are making that, you know, this uh, all this uh, uh, investigation of the Russian collusion investigation, what the FBI and, and the intelligence agencies and the Obama administration, the Department of Justice did. Uh, you know, punctuated again this week by Sally Yates' testimony. You know, this is problematic, not just because it's President Trump and uh, we want him to get reelected. It's problematic because of the precedent that it's set that undermines the peaceful transfer of power, that undermines the legitimacy of agencies that have a lot of power and in whom we otherwise place a lot of trust uh, that could be, you know, foundational institutions for the rule of law as well as for our national security that are now that are now being called into question by significant percentage of the population. That's why it's important. And that, that's the case I think you make to the, to the American people. But maybe it doesn't have any resonance. I, I have to think that the Democrats don't think that argument has any resonance. Otherwise, Susan Rice could not be in the conversation about being their presidential candidates running mate. It just is insane to me, particularly against the backdrop of uh, Paul Sperry over at Real Clear Investigations, uh, his piece out uh, yesterday that, uh, you know, the people that are close to Durham and people that he knows, and he's a good investigative journalist too, uh, suggests that uh, sort of as Barr intimated in inter- interviews over the last several weeks that the Durham investigation will be complete and there will be a presentation of uh, charges against whoever's going to be charged before Labor Day. H- how do you nominate Susan Rice if those things are of a concern to uh, an important percentage of the American electorate? Well, because I think they don't take this seriously and they don't take um, the thoughtfulness of the American voter. This doesn't mean it might would flip a person who doesn't like Trump to vote for him, but it certainly could mean that they're going to sit this out because they're going to say, look, this is the same old corruption that I've been against uh, for 20 years, whatever, you know, as, as a, maybe as a middle-aged voter and 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 why why I can't put my I can't put my vote behind this. This is this is a vote for continuing corruption, and so I think that's the challenge um, that they're not considering. I don't. I think they think the <laughs> I think they think the American public is stupid, <laughs> and um, I think that that is a risk they're willing to take. You know, they have calculated for whatever reason, if they decide to choose Rice, that, uh, you know, that they can overcome that narrative with a different narrative. You know, you don't, you know, we don't, we're not privy to, you know, what, what they're going to run on, but you have to speculate that they, they have some reason for thinking they can get away with that. She is Selena Zita, Washington Examiner reporter, New York Post columnist, CNN contributor, and author of the must-read book, especially now. This is a good read, uh, thinking about uh, November 3rd. The Great Revolt Inside the Populist Coalition Reshaping American Politics. Selena, thanks again for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. People can check my stuff out at selenazito.com. It's all there. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. I've said this before and I will repeat it that uh, 
the future of America in terms of its social and cultural cohesion runs through the hopes and aspirations of black Americans. It's going to run through the decisions that black Americans make about what kind of America they want. It really is. uh, And I believe that about the conservative movement of which I'm a part as well. And it's going to be disproportionately determined by black Americans. Black Americans are going to have to take the lead as a conversation I've had with Bob Woodson and Shelby Steele and Jason Hill from DePaul, many others, because black Americans have the moral standing that uh, white Americans don't, not necessarily on the merits, but uh, because of the demonization of whites and the racialization of our politics. So it's the path of least resistance, but it also is real in the sense that obviously black Americans have a unique position in America because of the injustice that was committed against them through slavery and Jim Crow, something that is readily acknowledged. The question is uh, never that among conservatives. The question is the question that Martin Luther King asked, that Clarence Page, a man of the left, is asking now, asked on the show. How do we go forward? Where are we going? Where are we going? Well, that's a question that um, is going to be answered in many different ways by many different people. But I think the sort of prevailing direction will be determined by black Americans. And so there's a few different ways we can go, as exemplified by the thoughts of different black Americans that I figured I'd share. I'm not uh, I I take uh, BET founder Bob Johnson's uh, remarks to heart and Condi Rice's, too. I'm not here to tell black people what they think or to suggest I know what black people think or anybody else. I'm just here to tell you what I think. I'm not so presumptuous as all of those sentimental barbarians on the left and white uh, seven sister school undergrads running around trying to take down Frederick Douglass statues. OK, so here's one way. This from a suburban school district in Chicago, Evanston, Skokie area. Evanston is where Northwestern University is located, for those who don't know. This is a very liberal area very leftist, totally beset by identitarian politics. I probably didn't need to describe that. I just need to read you what their reopening plan is for their school district in Skokie and Evanston. One aspect of it. Latarsha Green is the deputy superintendent of that school district. She said that uh, one of the district's task forces considered what the district should do in the event more students apply to take on-site learning than were than there were available slots. She said the task force administrators decided to give the following categories of students a priority. Students receiving free or reduced lunch, black and brown students, students who received an incomplete or less than 50 percent on their report cards, emerging bilinguals and students with IEPs, individual education plans, students with learning disabilities. The uh, superintendent will be targeting our dependent learners, those students that are marginalized first, as far as how we will serve them. We are in a pandemic and we also know that everyone is affected by this differently, but there was a pandemic before this. That was inequity and racism and classism and all these other things. Eloquent. And so I just want to make sure that we're making a decision. No decision is going to make everyone happy. We understand that. We're trying to support every single child to the best of our ability. And we can't allow a political cash train to take over our decision making regarding how we return our students to school. No, not a political cash train. No, no. But we can let our identitarian ideology drive those decision makings, which it is. Again, I, I find it remarkable that. Um, six and a half decades after Brown v. Board of Education, you have people literally advocating resegregation, right? Was that the promise of Brown v. Board? Gosh, I'll have to go back and read Thurgood Marshall 
about the Brown v. Board of Education and discarding the uh, noxious philosophy of separate but equal. And now we're resegregating for the purposes of separate but equal, separate but more equal. It's bizarre, but that's one way. That's one way we could go. Here's another brought to us from our friend Bob Woodson, who I just mentioned, writing in the Wall Street Journal this week about the resilience of the black American. Bob Woodson is great because he tells stories of success, black American success in spite of uh, discrimination by law or discrimination culturally, the injustices that were committed. Uh, And so since we're on the topic of rewriting history, redefining America's foundation, Bob Woodson asks, if you asked young black students today who the Golden 13 were, few would be able to identify the group of determined African-American servicemen who won a noble victory in an era in which blacks were prohibited from becoming naval officers. This is in, uh, during World War II. At the insistence of uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, a crop of 16 college-educated black cadets were chosen for line officer training in 1944. To ensure their failure, this is institutional racism, by the way, so maybe you can uh, distinguish it from the institutional racism that's con- claimed today. This in the Naval Academy. The normal training period of 16 weeks was reduced to eight weeks for the black cadets. When they realized that someone in the Navy wanted them to wash out, the cadets covered up the windows of their barracks and studied all night. When they were tested, the entire group passed with high marks. Disbelief in the chain of command that an all-black cadet class could achieve higher scores than an all-white one meant that the black sailors had to suffer the indignity of retaking their tests. Again, all 16 passed. The Navy offered commissions to only 13. The Golden 13. How many of you know that history? Why don't we? Why don't we? Uh, As Bob Woodson says, we know the story, some of us do, of the Tulsa massacre. We don't know the story of Tulsa, uh, Black Wall Street in Tulsa. Uh, We can talk about uh, why the massacre happened, and we should. We should also talk about how Black Wall Street could exist in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in an era of discrimination under the law, subjugation under the law. I don't want to be coy about it. He also mentions uh, uh, Margot Lee Shetterly's uh, great book, which was turned into a great movie, Hidden Figures. And before that movie, how many people knew about Katherine Johnson, Mary Jackson, and Dorothy Vaughn and uh, their impact on the space program? Why don't we? Uh, Bob uh, writes in closing his piece, Every day at my office, I pass a wall with a photograph of a group of slaves from 1861. The photo is titled Strength and features the quotation, The strongest people in the world are not those most protected. They're the ones who must struggle against adversity and obstacles and surmount them to survive. The Golden Thirteen and the women of Hidden Figures embody this maxim. And um, as the uh, Hidden Figures book author, uh, Shatterly, declared at the book signing that Bob attended, Bob quoting her, These are the kinds of stories that change your life. You see people doing these amazing things and you internalize it, you normalize it, and it completely changes your inner landscape and what you believe is possible. So what do you want to do? The bigotry of low expectations over at Evanston, Skokie, District 65, and you can be assured school districts all over this country that are similarly uh, race-addled or the examples that Bob's talking about 
uh, from the annals of American history, the Golden 13 and the Hidden Figures women and the model of replicating success because it is possible and there's nothing that's standing in your way, no obstacle that's too large in your way to do exactly what you want to do in this country. What do you want to promote? And what do you think are the implications of that which we promote? Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show and uh, Peggy Noonan writing in the Wall Street Journal that America is a coalition of the worried and she uses... uh, some uh, snippets of interviews she conducted with a few people she knows from around the country in different walks of life to suggest that uh, everyone wants a feeling of safety, but no one is sure where safety can be found. And so the mood this charged summer of 2020, writes Noonan, everyone's scared. Everyone's trying to figure out where safety is. Everyone's afraid of making a mistake. You aren't alone. The whole vast middle of the country now is the coalition of the worried, worried about big things, not the pedestrian everyday things, big things because of the jeopardy in which people find their businesses, their jobs, their kids' education, their health. Is that right? So you have that sussed out right? People are organically worried about all of those things. There's been no foisting upon people these worries. We're all captive to events that are worrying us. Or are they choices we've made? How we've chosen to react to the challenges that have presented themselves. Some man-made and some emanating from vagaries of nature, like the virus. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Matt Purple. He's a senior editor at the American Conservative. Matt, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Hey, Dan. It's great to be back with you. I found Peggy Noonan's uh, column very motherly, but I don't find it to be particularly descriptive of how we're in this place. I find people worried about these things because... So many have gone gone along with terrible government policies and uh, so many others. Uh, and there's some overlap in this Venn diagram have been whipped into unhinged frenzy that is neither rooted in fact nor safety nor an appreciation for risk or trade offs. So I find that uh, this is uh, significantly induced. It's not just something where we're all in this together and we all got here from in the, in the same way. Yeah, there was an Irish grandmother quality to that column, I think. And, you know, I, I wrote my own column about this crazy frenzied year, you know, 2020. And I, I certainly agree that there is a lot of fear out there right now. Certainly agree that we have reason to be fearful. You know, that the virus is a, a challenge that you know hasn't been experienced in this country for a century. And you throw on top of that the economic damage and, you know, wrangling with just what our country is, with the racism that's existed in our past and with the attempt to just tear down every the hideous attempt to tear down everything today. All this has, has really cohered into a storm. I think. But at the same time, I don't look across the country and see people just trembling with anxiety. You know, that doesn't strike me as being the mood necessarily. Again, there's reason to worry. And I think people probably are. And, you know, they want to get back to work and everything. It it seems like we're always, we're forever, according to the punditry, on the verge of a nervous breakdown, whether it's because of terrorism or, you know, whatever the case might be. And I just, as bad as this year is, and as badly as I diagnosed it, I, I think that there's more confidence and more pluck out there than maybe she gives it credit 
for. Well, okay, no, that's yes. I also think, though, that we've experienced all the things we're experiencing now. Uh, it's it, throughout our course of history. If you want to compare it to 1917, 18, and the Spanish flu, okay, we could just as easily, I think, compare COVID 19 at this stage to 57 or 68. But the point is, we've been here sure. before. The responses are different. The response to the rioting and the violence in urban centers is different. The response to the viral outbreak is different. Uh, the response to assaults on our history is different. We've never appeased barbarism the way that we have appeased it here. We've never acquiesced to the wild expansion of government into every corner of our lives, including our faith lives, including our familial lives, including the lives of our children in our schools, the way that we have here. So that response tends, it seems to me, prompts some thinking about who we have become as a people. Uh, we're, we seem to be much more fragile than perhaps we were in previous generations, and I'm not talking just white fragility like Robin D'Angelo is. No, and I think there probably is something to that. I mean, I, I think that fear, a constant climate of fear is an anathema in a republic such as ours. You know, I think that FDR got that much right, at least, because from out of fear grows government. Out of fear comes a, you know, a terror color-coded system, a Department of Homeland Security. Out of fear comes an ever-expanding welfare state and so on, and, you know, an all-powerful executive that going to protect you. There's no question about it. I, I think you're absolutely right on that. And we have acquiesced in a way that we haven't before. And we are, I think, given these what are really just rioters at this point, although there are peaceful protesters too, but we are giving them more latitude than I think we otherwise might have. I, I think, again, my disagreement is just rooted in the fact that that somehow constitutes the entire national mood. I think, I think it's also, mm-hmm. it, it's reinforced to a certain extent too by our media, right? I mean, you can plug in and just, you know, marinate in this stuff all day long. You can go on Twitter and, and you know, just kind of wrap yourself in the bad news. You can turn on cable news and it's, you know, there's a lot of fear on there too. And so you can become quite anxious. But I think if Peggy Noonan were to drive out in the heartland somewhere and and go to a diner or go to a bar, I think she would find people in uh, perhaps pluckier spirits than, than she is. And she would find that the mood is a little bit less anxious too. Yeah, I agree with that. I definitely agree with that. Uh, uh, When we come back with Matt Purple, I want to talk about something that really engenders Uh, blood-curdling fear in the minds of the American populace, and that's the prospect that Ellen DeGeneres could be out of a job. Matt Purple, senior editor of the American Conservative, will be back with more right after this. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Matt Purple. He's a senior editor at the American Conservative. And, you know, part of the uh, fear mongering that we were discussing, Matt, uh, with respect to real threats to varying levels, depending on all sorts of variables, but uh, from the pandemic to employment to the quality of your kid's education and, and consequently intellectual and social development. Part of the fear mongering, though, is this idea that uh, America is about to be taken over by nefarious forces. And um, Jim Clyburn wins the award for advancing that notion this week. Jim Clyburn, the House Majority Whip who saved Joe Biden's candidacy in South Carolina and uh, put him on his way to the nomination for the Democrat Party, uh, now tripling down in an interview with TMZ that Putin is Hitler and Trump is Mussolini And I guess by extension, we're on the cusp of some sort of global war. Oh, and by the way, uh, if Trump loses, he's not going to leave office other than by some sort of um, 
military operation to remove him because he's decided to make himself president for life. I wouldn't say it if I didn't believe it. Uh, the fact that, the facts are very clear. He says he was on the phone, what, seven or eight times with Putin recently? Nobody knows what he's talking about. Is he getting instructions from Putin? What's he talking about on the phone? And if you look at the way he is carrying out this presidency, you kind of see what I mean when I say Putin is Hitler and he's Mussolini. This guy really does not plan to go quietly if he is not reelected. And if he is reelected, I don't think he would plan to go quietly because the Constitution dictates you can't serve for two terms. This guy intends to install himself uh, under the emergency powers of whatever he can use to be president for life. He has said that jokingly, but he means that. As one uh, person said the other day, he doesn't tell jokes. He means everything he says. Sure. On top of everything else, Matt, we have to be worried about a Kim Jong-Trump move uh, after November 3rd. Yeah, well, you know, a few things on that. First of all, I noticed that Congressman Clyburn, uh, you know, in comparing Putin to Hitler, he missed the country that's actually throwing an entire ethnicity into concentration camps, which is China. Uh, he didn't have anything to say about that, which Trump has been fairly tough on. Second of all, if Trump is Mussolini, I miss the jackbooted thugs marching through the streets and the climate of fascism that's set in and, the, you know, the authoritarianism and everything. That doesn't seem to have materialized. In fact, I, I hear a lot of criticism of Donald Trump, as it turns out. I can turn on Morning Joe every morning and hear about three hours straight of it. Third of all, you know, look, the idea that Trump doesn't tell jokes has to be one of the biggest misreadings. No president has ever told more jokes than Donald Trump. Um, that's where we get that phrase, uh, you know, his voters take him seriously, but not literally. That's where that comes from. And yeah, you know, I, I think it is dangerous for Trump to say something like he's thinking about postponing the election. I will freely admit to that. It is also dangerous for somebody like Clyburn to insinuate that he's not going to leave, whether it's, you know, come January or come another four and a half years from now. That instills just the kind of fear that we were talking about in the previous segment. Well, right. And it also and, and, you know, something else that fear gives way to is unreason and unreason gives way to unkindness, as Chesterton famously observed. And that's where we're at. And so you can't have a rational conversation with anybody, whether or not you recognize uh, some of Trump's foibles and you, you disagree with some of his policies. But have you considered this or have you considered that? Very hard to have that conversation with anybody who's uh, dead set against Trump. You can't talk about anything other than their hatred of Trump. And there's something um, really uh, psychotic about it in a way that I think Theodore Dalrymple was getting to in this uh, excellent piece. It's Theodore Dalrymple. It's always excellent. Uh, In the new Criterion, where he talked about a a speech he recently gave at uh, Cambridge and uh, another uh, person who was there who he was at that point unfamiliar with named Katie Hopkins, who had brought out uh, the mob. Um, And uh, he makes this point that what he saw with uh, these Antifa folk, who he wryly suggested would be better called profa or simulfa, the pro-fascist, not anti-fascist. But he uh, what he he writes, what seemed to me perfectly obvious was that the demonstrators who appeared to be uh, super appeared superficially to be angry with or about Miss Hopkins. They were, in fact, enjoying themselves hugely. They were acting in a kind of bad faith and some sense dishonestly by disguising from themselves their real emotions. They were stoking themselves up into an agreeable state of fury. I'm angry. Therefore, I'm good was essentially what he witnessed from these protesters. And that's sort of the performance art we're getting from politicians like Clyburn, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In order to be somebody today, in order to be morally righteous, you have to be angry. Any kind of, you know, give Trump at least credit for this. He is funny. Any kind of humor, any kind of lightness is just frowned down upon because the perception is that the stakes are so high. So you'd better be out there 
you know, shaking your fists in the street. And, and this, of course, is the way that the Jacobins behaved. This, of course, is the way that, you know, that the weathermen behaved during their rage rituals. It wasn't just about protesting something. It wasn't just about the civic good or about trying to enact something that was greater than themselves. It was about self-validation, too. It was about giving them something to, to premise themselves on, to believe in, which, which ultimately was derived in anger, which resulted from anger. It was, it was you know, cloaking themselves in their own righteousness and feeling good about it. And I, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think we do see that with the protests today. We do see that with people who, you know, just cannot stop raging against Donald Trump, just constantly have to do it all the time. You know, I, I understand that we have to talk about him. He's the president, but we get the idea. Uh, it, it becomes <laughs> yeah. kind of solicistic after a while, I well, think. Well, right. I mean, that, that, yeah, I, I think that's the key point. It's part of their identity. This is why you can't uh, have a reasonable conversation. They haven't come to this position through logic. So you can't get them out through logic or even a rational conversation because to have a rational conversation, number one is to, you know, in their, in their critical theory minds, some of them, at least the pseudo intellectuals is, you know, to even have a debate as to, uh, is to, uh, cede power to the, uh, the, the, the illegitimate power structure. Number one, number two, to have a debate and, and lose or call into question anything that you're ranting is to call into question your very identity, and nobody wants to do that. Yeah, and it's you know it, it's amazing because we've essentially built up a hierarchy here that negates any need for critical thought, right? You can tell whether or not a thought is valid, whether or not it's worth hearing, simply by the identity of the person who's speaking it, simply by whether or not they're you know, a white man or, or, you know, gay or cisgendered, as we're calling it now, everything else. We've turned this into a point system, into a value system with, with critical race theory. And uh, you don't even have to listen anymore. You don't even have to think anymore. You can just say, oh, that Matt Purple, he's a white guy from Connecticut. I don't have to listen to him and brush him away. And it is, I, I think we should really point out, it's the same as the, the French Revolution is, it is an age of unreason. And especially if this kind of ideology prevails, and it's way too ingrained in my generation and in the generation below, uh, it, it is an age of, of unreason where we're almost proud of not thinking. And I, I think we ought to reconsider that. All right. When we come back with uh, Matt Purple, I will get to his piece on Ellen DeGeneres and the seeming contradiction between what the identitarians are saying, generally speaking, and what they're doing in the case of Ellen DeGeneres. Back with more of Matt Purple right after this. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Back on the Dan Prof Show with Matt Purple. And uh, Matt, I promised to get to your piece on Ellen DeGeneres. The Ellen DeGeneres piece that you wrote is so interesting because, you know, it's hard to unpack all this. The, the one hand, what I agree with the description you provide. On the other hand, you have Ellen DeGeneres, whose identity isn't saving her with respect to these allegations that uh, she's created a toxic workplace on the, the Saturn and behind the scenes on her very popular show, or at least it used to be very popular until five minutes ago. But here's, uh, you know, a dutiful woman of the left who's gay. That was her identity. That's part of her rise to fame, part of her claim to fame. You know, so female lesbian 
um, who was very much uh, out front with her identity. That's not good enough in this context. It turns out her behavior matters. You're so right, and it's such an interesting conundrum, isn't it? Because really, at the end of the day, I think Ellen DeGeneres should go just because she's a bad boss. There's nothing worse than having a, a boss, you know, who makes you go home in the evening and feel miserable and unwanted. And, you know, a, a really tyrannical boss, I think, can ruin, you know, your livelihood. So that, that ought to be enough. But you'll notice in that BuzzFeed article that what her former employees were saying was that she was guilty of her executive producers were guilty of microaggressions and there had been racist behavior that had been they still have to speak the language of critical race theory they still have to put it in terms of you know power structures power dynamics that are based on race and gender even though ellen DeGeneres is unquestionably somebody with great power and and that's really all that you need to say um, but it still has to fit into this template. It is it's just totalitarian. You know, it, it's all consuming. It has to be everywhere. And they go and they go back to I saw a piece of the sun. I think they go they're going back to her like making fun of or fat shaming some 11 year old kid when she was in some other job when, you know, well before she was famous. So this is like going back to your, you know, your complete record. This is going to, you know, tweets that an eight year old made or that that a, that a 16 year old made when he was eight and saying the 16 year old can't get into this high school or can't go to this college or can't get this job. A young person because they tweeted something that was intemperate or stupid when they were, you know, a preteen. This is the nature of it as well. Trying to jackpot your fellow citizens. Oh, constantly. Yeah. It's just this, this bloodlust, this constant need to take people down, to cancel people, and then, you know, completely forgetting about them the next day and running on to other things. And there's always just, you know, trails of victim that are left in the wake. And I mean, it's gotten to the point that you're not allowed to say anything anymore. I'm reminded of um, Kyle Kashev, one of the survivors yes. of the, uh, the, the high school shooting down in Parkland, Florida. Right. He was the rare yeah, Parkland. Yeah, he was the rare conservative in the, the group. He opposed further gun control measures. And they caught him saying something stupid and racist, I think, on Gchat when he was 16 years old. And on that, Harvard, which had accepted him, they're going to take him in. They, they kicked him out. They said, no, so sorry. This is, you know, you're not allowed to be redeemed for something you said when you were a minor. Well, that disqualifies all of us, right? I mean, just chuck us all out of society. We've all said stupid and even hateful things that we surely regret. And it's just it's, it's making our political discourse more boring because the only way you can survive is if you say things that are boring, if you're as boring as possible, if you don't act like a human being, because human beings are flawed. Mm. Matt Purple, senior editor at the American Conservative, theamericanconservative.com. Matt, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this edition of the Dan Prof Show and all week. We do appreciate it. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you back here on Monday. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.